Well, it's good to be back home and back with you after a little bit of travel the past couple of weeks. I'm, gr- I'm glad to be back. Uh, so thankful for your prayers, uh, support of the elders here to allow me to be able to go and spend time on the mission field from time to time. I was in Kenya the last uh, couple of weeks where every time I go, I'm compelled again and again by the opportunities that are there, but also by the, the fruit um, by what the Lord is doing uh, when we're able to minister over there. Mark Nino and I were traveling together. He's still there uh, ministering to his church and to his people during this time. But it was a great um, a few weeks with local pastors doing training in various venues, teaching at the uh, Kenya Baptist Theological College and Seminary, and then uh, going out into western Kenya and uh, doing some conferences there. There are a few quasi-ministries that are there, which really have very little distinction from the local witch doctor that are uh, preaching a form of the gospel, but one which is distorted and diluted by the greed of those who are preaching it and their lust, their every bit uh, of the false prophets that the scripture warns us about, and it's evident to so many And so there's a compelling need, really, uh, in the city of Nairobi as well as throughout Kenya for sound churches, for clear proclamation of the gospel, and uh, and for training, uh, training pastors on sound theology, on uh, biblical interpretation, on philosophy of ministry, and all those things. At the heart of the confusion among so many of these so-called churches is confusion about the Holy Spirit. Uh, much confusion about the way he works, about the kind of fruits that are there when he does. And in accordance with that, I, I spent the last week that I was there just teaching almost exclusively on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It was an encouraging time as a number of pastors uh, were just expressing their teachable hearts. You would teach something very plainly from the Scripture and they would come up so humbly and say, I've been... I've been all wrong on this issue, and not only that, I've planted 10 churches, and they've got it all wrong because I trained them, and now I've got to go back, and he said, pray for me for this next year. I've got to go, and I've got to reteach all these churches what I've heard here, and the people are just so receptive. There's very little resistance to the teaching of the Scripture. When you lay it out plain to them, God works powerfully. Such an encouraging time to see so many who were eager and receptive for the Word of God as it was taught. And among the things that I emphasized throughout the week is that the Holy Spirit is a person and not a power. He's not a power to be wielded like the incantations of the witch doctors that are all around them in their villages. He's not a power like... Electricity is a power where you just sort of plug in a cord and automatically whatever your item is, the juice flows and the, the, the light comes on, if you will. But throughout Scripture, what you see when you see teaching on the Holy Spirit is you see a description of a person with all the characteristics of knowledge and wisdom of of emotion and love and grief, of determination and will. And you also see all the things that describe, if you will, the actions of a person. 
You see descriptions of the Holy Spirit doing things like speaking and teaching and testifying and commanding and leading. Along with all that description of his personhood, I also emphasized to those pastors again and again that you see the Holy Spirit continually described as God. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's described as the eternal spirit, the spirit of grace, the spirit of truth, the spirit of glory, and obviously the spirit of holiness. And so the Holy Spirit is both a personal being and a divine being, as described in Scripture. And as such, it is not He who submits to us, but it is we who are to submit to Him. Our job is to obey Him, not to command Him to do our will and our bidding, but to do His will and His bidding. And as a person, as a divine person, He also cares for us in the same way that God cares for us. He also sympathizes with us. He feels deeply for our burdens and our struggles. He's moved with compassion and He comes to our aid. In fact, one of the most beautiful names in all of Scripture for the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside. The Greek word is paraclete. He's called alongside of us. It's translated in some uh, versions as the helper or the comforter. All of those things are true. He's both those a help in our weakness, a comfort in our struggles, as well as a counselor and a friend. He comes alongside of us, and as a loving, caring person at the same time, He is also all-powerful, a powerful person of the Trinity. Now, all that is not just summary of my mission trip. It is really great foundation for us as we come back to Romans chapter 8 this morning, an excellent foundation as we've been looking at this glorious passage in Scripture a few weeks ago, Romans chapter 8, I mentioned to you that this is one of the most significant passages in all of Scripture on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is mentioned more times in this chapter than any chapter of the Bible. And so we have a treasure trove here of insight and teaching on the role of the Holy Spirit. As we've seen already how Paul tells us the Spirit regenerates us, He gives us a new mind, and He illuminates us to truth, and He teaches us, and He leads and guides us. And all of those are works of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Not just a select few, but all believers. They all experience this working of the Holy Spirit. And so one of the key benefits of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we have seen all the way through this, is by His working we have assurance. In fact, remember, this is, this is what sort of brackets the whole chapter, this understanding of assurance. Paul begins the chapter by saying in verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ and he ends the chapter in verses 38 and 39 telling us that there's no separation for those who are in Christ and so 
from the beginning to the end, Paul is talking to us about how we can have confidence in our relationship to Christ, and so much of it is built on and is carried through by the working of the Holy Spirit. This this assurance that comes to us, comes to us again and again through this precious helper, this precious comforter who's given to us. We saw that in the first 16 verses of Romans 8, which dealt primarily with issues of sin and how we can have assurance in our relationship with God even when we continue to struggle with sin. Paul's answer in all of that came again by the Holy Spirit. He didn't deny that we sin, but he set a contrast between, as he says in the opening verses, those whose minds are set on the things of the flesh and those whose mind is set on the things of the Spirit. So that even in the face of ongoing sin, there will still be, in the heart of every believer, an orientation of their heart and their mind toward the things of the Spirit. And by the way, the more that you orient your mind and your heart toward the things of the Spirit, the greater will be your sense of assurance of your salvation. There is no escaping that reality. There is no shortcut to that truth. Assurance is the byproduct of a faithful life. Assurance is inseparable from faithful living. And you were never intended to have assurance of your salvation if there is no evidence of the Spirit in your life. A faithful life is the byproduct of the Holy Spirit. And so it is the foundation of assurance. So when Paul tells us in verse 1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he says it is the case because... The law of the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. Because, as he goes on to say, those who are in Christ Jesus have set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I know it's difficult for some people because they want assurance of salvation without the need for spiritual fruit. Without the need for evidences of this kind of life. But the reality is, The Bible doesn't give that kind of assurance. You were never intended to have it. And so what we learned in the first 16 verses is this, is that the Spirit is essential for our assurance. He gives us life within, so that even as we wrestle against the ongoing realities of the flesh, we still feel that orientation in our hearts. We still sense a conviction whenever we falter a sense of shame and a desire to repent, and all of those things come to us as assurances that we belong to Him, even in our weaknesses. But in verse 17, Paul turned our attention to yet another factor that often attacks our assurance, and that is the issue of suffering. Not just sin, but the suffering that we experience. Because it's really when things are not going our way, when you're tempted to doubt and wonder whether God really, truly has abandoned you. You're suffering perhaps some illness or some injustice or some persecution or some neediness. 
and you cry out to God, and when those prayers are not immediately answered, you begin to wonder whether God has heard you, or if He's heard you, whether He cares, whether He'll answer. But Paul begins to tell us in verse 17 that even in those times, we have assurance through difficulties, through suffering, that God's love for us has not been thwarted, that His plan for us still remains. And if you were with us a few weeks ago, you remember how we started to look at the ways Paul shows this to us, slowly examining what he gives us are four key perspectives, four key players from four key perspectives that really help us comprehend God's glorious purpose in our suffering, four different perspectives from four four different participants in God's plan for our glory. And each one of them encouraging us and stirring us with a sense of hope, building our patience, and even building our sense of anticipation for what is to come, the glory that awaits us. Four perspectives from four different participants encouraging us in the way that God's working out our glory through suffering. The first one, you may remember, we looked at in verses 19 through 22, which is really our parallel with creation's suffering. Paul says there in verse 20, he says, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. So he's telling us creation itself has been subjected to this certain kind of suffering, a certain cycle of corruption and decay with all kinds of famines and catastrophes and natural disasters, none of it originally God's design for creation, but it was all the result of man's fall into sin, of man's curse. It was the result of, of uh, the curse that God cast on creation when He spoke about thorns and thistles that the earth would produce for man and for woman. And when we look around at creation, and we even suffer under some of its catastrophes, some of its hardships, some of its thorns, we ought to be reminded that this is not the way God originally intended things to be. That there is a weight of burden that has fallen even to creation as a result of sin. And so that suffering, we can say, is not God's perfect design for us. It is a temporary and, uh, and we might even say uh, an undesirable, maybe an unfortunate result of our own corruption. But thankfully it's not the end because Paul says creation was subjected to this futility in hope. Really pulling on so much Old Testament material that speaks again and again and again about the renewal of the physical world, the physical creation. And so Paul picks up on that theology and conveys it to us with this sense of hope that at the resurrection of God's sons and daughters, at our resurrection, that creation itself will also go through a sort of restoration to the original way that God 
intended it. And so you and I will be ushered into a new creation externally because of the work of Christ. But Paul doesn't stop just there. He begins with that sort of parallel, framing everything for us so that we can understand some of our suffering in light of the curse of creation. But then he gives us another perspective, which we saw last time was the patience that's being worked out through our suffering. As he says in verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul turns from a redemption of creation to our own redemption, from the groaning of the world to our own groaning, and from the hope of creation to our own hope. And what he says is, it's not only creation that has been corrupted, it is us. And even us who are redeemed, we might have experienced internally a renewal. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, but they're still awaiting an external adoption, an external completion of the work that has already begun in us. We're saved not to be fully satisfied with the way that we are right now. We're saved not to be content with the ongoing struggles that we have, but we're saved so that our perspectives long for and look for the final and full salvation that awaits us. We have this down payment. We have these first fruits. And it's supposed to make us anxious, to stir us with eagerness and anticipation. But at the same time, it's also supposed to give us patience. That even though we're suffering along in this world, we know this is not the end. So with every disappointment, with every sense of lack and need, with every frustration, with every attack, with all of those things, we're not to imagine that that is the end of God's plan for us. You're not to imagine that as you're suffering along and whatever you're suffering, that this is the end of where God wants to take you. You're supposed to always know that there's something greater out there, something still waiting for you in the redemption of our bodies, our adoption as sons. And so we're in this place where we groan. That's Paul's word for it. We are not complaining. This is not grumbling about our circumstances. That is not a godly response. But he uses the word groan in the sense of eagerness. We're eager for something beyond this life. Something beyond our current state. We groan feeling a sense of discomfort and aching because of remaining sin, but not disheartened. Instead, growing more and more patient as the Lord works within us. Because as we grow in Christ, so our hope deepens. Our hope deepens. You have your struggles. You have your conflicts. You have your disappointments. But every one of them is intended to detach you 
It is intended to make you ache in the burden of sin in this world and to set your hope on something else. And although you might only reluctantly let go of this world, although you might only reluctantly let go of the remaining sin, God is not going to be content until you have set all of your hope Until you set all of your affections on that day which is coming. That adoption as sons and daughters. Now today we we come to a third perspective that's given to us in that. And I, I hate to belabor anything too long, but this is just so rich. We cannot speed through it. I mean, there's so much ahead of us. But this, this is just profound. And this is the perspective of the Holy Spirit. As we've seen, he's present everywhere throughout this chapter, but he comes to prominence here again as Paul begins to speak to us in verses 27, uh, 26 and 27 about the prayers of the Spirit for our suffering. The prayers of the Holy Spirit for our suffering. I mean, this is encouraging stuff. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul's obviously drawing a comparison here, likewise, in the same way. And the comparison is with the hope and the patience that sustains us through our suffering as it deepens and deepens and deepens. And just as that hope and just as that patience proved to be a powerful source for endurance in suffering, so does the Holy Spirit. He's a powerful source for endurance He helps us in our weakness. And the idea is this, that perhaps even when those other things may fail us, even when those other things do not sustain us, even when our hope might begin to wane and our eager expectation may not always be as rich, and even when our patience may grow thin, We have another source working for us to sustain us through all of our difficulties. And specifically, it is the prayers of the Holy Spirit, who Paul says intercedes for us. Now, it's interesting because down in verse 34, we're told that also Jesus Christ who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, is indeed interceding for us. So there are two divine intercessors, two divine advocates who are lifting up our needs before God the Father in prayer. We have God the Son and we have God the Holy Spirit. A Trinitarian 
intervention, you will, if you will, at every attack of the evil one, at every temptation, at every trial. But what is unique about the Spirit is His special connection to us. Because we're told that in some way, He has a closeness, a nearness to us that is unlike the other persons of the Godhead. Unlike the experience of an unbeliever, and even unlike those believers in the Old Testament, He has come alongside of us, and not only that, He lives inside of us. (coughs) This was Jesus' promise, you remember. John 14, verse 16, when He told the disciples, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. He said, I'll ask the Father and He'll give you another helper, another paraclete is the word, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and He will be in you. Jesus says, you already know Him. He's already been with you. Who's he talking about? I believe he's talking about himself. He's saying, you've already had a helper. A helper who was right there with you along the way, teaching you, guiding you, encouraging you, rebuking you if necessary, praying for you. You've had someone who was there alongside of you who was known as your helper, but I must go away. And so what God is going to send is another helper. He uses the word alos, another of the same kind. He doesn't use the word heteros, which would be another of a different kind, but the word alos. I'm going to send you another helper of the same kind as me. In in many of the same ways that Christ helps us, in many of the 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 same ways that Christ helped the disciples, one who is going to come, but one who wasn't going to be just alongside of them, but He was going to, if you will, abide in them, indwell them in a unique way that had never happened before. Jesus goes to the Father and the Father sends the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus says, if I didn't go to the Father, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. (coughs) But after the cross... After the work of redemption, after His ascension, after all those things, something happened. And the disciples, who had only experienced God through the person of Christ. Thank you, brother. Now we're going to experience Him through the Holy Spirit. Now here in Romans chapter 8, Paul's telling us that this Holy Spirit is helping us in the midst of our weakness. In a way unique to even Christ's own intercession. And what we find him describing here is really three elements of of this help, three elements of his intercessory prayer that encourage us in the midst of our, our suffering. The first one, we could just say, is his sympathy. His sympathy. Paul says he groans for us. In fact, Paul says he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
Now, obviously, this picks up a whole theme that's been given to us already in terms of groaning. We're told the creation groans under the weight of its corruption. We're told that we groan waiting for our perfected and glorified bodies. But here he says the Holy Spirit is groaning. Not because He has imperfections. Not because the Holy Spirit is awaiting any kind of change. Not because He's going to undergo any sort of process of redemption. He has no sins. He has no need for redemption. But He's groaning, not because of His own experiences, but because of ours. He senses our struggle. He sympathizes with our agony. He knows our disappointment, our ongoing battle with sin. And although he has never experienced the battle himself, he groans for us and with us because of this intimate connection that he has with us. Now, the ESV and the New American Standard paraphrase this as groanings too deep for words, but actually the word, it's a single word in the Greek language, alaletois, literally wordless or without words. So these are wordless groanings. They are not verbalized, they are not articulated, which immediately rules out what some have suggested, that this is some kind of veiled reference to tongues or some sort of private prayer language that we lift up to God because it's not even a language. In fact, it's not even words. And it's certainly not even our words. These are wordless, non-articulated prayers. Whereas the gift of tongues or what some people associate with the gift of tongues or even a private prayer language in 1 Corinthians 14, we're told, is an articulated, a verbalized gift that needs even interpretation. But the whole point Paul's making here is that these, these are prayers that are lifted up without words. These are groanings of the Holy Spirit. When you and I don't know how to pray, when you and I don't know what words to say, it is the Spirit who prays these kinds of prayers. He groans for us before God. And at those very times, when you're at a loss of words, when you might assume that God is most disconnected with what you're feeling, when you don't know what to think about God or His will or your situation or any of those things, at that very moment is when He is feeling most deeply what you're feeling, most sympathetically. To the point where he can identify with your groans and groan with you. And one of the reasons why is because he lives in us. And as, Paul, as Jesus says, abides with us. Like I said, this is unlike anything people had known before. This is unlike any work the Spirit had done before. This is a unique gift that's been given to us in Christ. And He comes to us with this intimacy and He comes to us with this knowledge and He comes to us with this sympathy. But we can also take note of this. Not only sympathy, but Paul also says He comes with insight or He comes with knowledge. 
He comes with knowledge. As Paul says, we don't know how to pray as we ought. But the implication is that he does. He does. I mean, that's true. I mean, especially in the midst of suffering, because of our immaturities, because of the remaining weakness of our flesh, because of our frailty, because of our our finite understanding, our perspective and our situation sometimes is unclear. Sometimes it's just flat out flawed. We're not thinking rightly about a situation. We're not thinking clearly about a situation. And yet God has uh, promised tremendous help to those who cast their cares on Him. Who come before His throne to find grace and help in time of need. He's promised us by means of prayer that there's tremendous resources available to us. The problem is that sometimes we just don't know how to pray. We don't know whether to ask for deliverance or patience. We don't know whether to ask for healing or endurance. And Paul's point is that although we don't always know what God is trying to do through each particular trial, whether He's trying to teach us patience or give us more boldness, whether He's trying to put more of an emphasis on our need for trust or more of an emphasis on our need for prudence and preparation, we don't know. And there are those times of darkness where we just don't know what to seek. Stories told about a woman who was walking along the beach one night and found sea turtles who had freshly laid their eggs in the sand. And one of them she saw groping up the hill in the darkness toward the lights of the condos that were there on the beach. Immediately knowing that the, the turtle was confused and really headed towards uh, certain death, she called some friends who all gathered around and lifted this massive creature, turned it around and pointed it back in the direction and sat there and watched as the turtle now made its way through all of the crashing waves of the sea, struggling wave after wave to get back out to where it belonged. Reflected on this, So many times the lights that we follow, we don't even know whether they're leading to our doom or to our salvation. And we just naturally run away from the waves. But see, during those times, the Spirit knows. Not only are we told that He leads us and guides us, but He prays for us. He knows. Sometimes we can know, sometimes we study the Word of God, we can understand the will of God, and the more and more we align our prayers with God's Word, the more we can have confidence that God hears our prayers and uses our prayers, so that we're commanded to pray according to the will of God. 1 John five fourteen. this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And Jesus promised... That we ask anything according to His name, according to His will, He hears us. And so as we mature and as we grow in our understanding of God and of His Word, and our prayers mature more and more, they become more and more powerful. That's why James tells us the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man 
has great power as it works. And so we have that confidence that as we understand the will of God and know the will of God, as we mature, that those prayers are effective. But, but the reality is sometimes in our immaturity and in our inexperience, we just don't know. The more and more we seek God's kingdom and His righteousness the, and trust more and more that God will add all things together to us, we learn how to ask God for greater and greater things things according to His will, and He answers those prayers. But unfortunately, our heart is not always so faithfully oriented. And just in those times, Paul gives us this encouragement that we're not left without help and we're not left without effectual prayers. You remember, it was even the Apostle Paul who says that he was suffering under the, um, the abuse of the messenger of Satan, as he calls him in 2 Corinthians 12. And he prayed three times that the Lord would remove him, but the Lord didn't. Until God made known to him eventually that he had a purpose in this. He wanted to teach Paul a lesson about weakness, that when he's weak, then he's strong. But to begin with, Paul didn't know how to pray. And sometimes it's a long time before the Lord helps us understand how we should pray. And so we keep praying, perhaps the wrong thing. Or maybe we pray for the right thing, but we just need to learn to endure. As Jesus tells us, Luke 18, a parable to the effect that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God... Give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he long delay over them? I tell you, he'll give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So sometimes we don't know. Should we just keep praying and not lose heart, continue To trust that the Lord is building faith in us? Or or are we praying for the wrong thing? And so we are always lifting up our prayers. As the Lord wills. As the Lord wills. As the Lord wills. You know, sometimes it's a good thing. That God doesn't answer our prayers. Sometimes it's a good thing. If God isn't giving you what you ask for. Because what we're praying isn't the best thing for us. We assume it's a bad thing. We wonder why God hasn't responded, why God hasn't answered. It may be the very thing that you need. That there's someone else praying who knows the will of God. It would be bad if God gave us everything we ask for because we don't always understand the implications. We don't always understand the repercussions. We don't always understand the complications. 
But although you and I don't know, Paul says the Spirit knows. And as he says there in verse 27, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He always knows the will of God. He's always in perfect accordance with God's will in every situation. And he's always praying that. And he's always asking God about that. And guess what? God hears him. Every time. God always, always hears him. And always, always answers him. Which brings us to the third aspect of the Spirit's prayers that we take note of here. Which is not just that he has sympathy groaning together with you in whatever you're groaning under. And not only that he has knowledge praying God's will in your situation. But he has effectiveness. He has effectiveness. Because Paul assures us here, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He who searches hearts, that's God. As Scripture tells, tells us again and again, you and I don't know what is in each other's hearts. You may think that you do. You might have friends who think that they do. But the Bible's clear. We, you and I, can only look on the outward appearance. All we can do, all we can see is someone's actions. All we can address is their behavior. But God looks at the heart. And He truly knows what is in our heart more even than we do. And not only does He know our hearts, but He knows the heart of the Spirit. That's the point. And so not only is there perfect harmony between the desires of the Spirit and the will of God, but there's also perfect communication. In fact, even without words. These are wordless prayers. But the Father perfectly understands what is the motive and the intent and the request of the Spirit. Because they all perfectly align with His will And he answers every one of them just as he promised. Now how all this takes place within the Godhead is a mystery for us. God, we're told, is one in essence. There are not three gods. There are not three deities. There is only one God. The Lord, the God of Israel, is one, we're told. And yet within that perfect essence of God, there is, there is communion between three persons, three personalities. So that these persons of the Godhead have such perfect harmony and communication, sometimes even without words, they're able to communicate to one another. So here is the Spirit so intimately concerned with your burden. In fact, it causes him to groan just as you groan. It causes him to cry just as you cry. It causes him to ache as you ache. And yet whenever you sit and ponder and wonder what the Lord is doing, he knows exactly what needs to be done. Perfectly aware of what is good, perfectly aware of how generous God is, 
perfectly aware of what needs to be accomplished in your situation and in your goal. And so he intercedes even without words in a way that God understands perfectly and God hears. What a blessed thought. Like Peter, who Jesus says Satan wanted to sift like wheat. But Jesus said, I prayed for you. I prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. Do you know if it wasn't for the interceding work of the Holy Spirit, your faith would fail? If it wasn't for the interceding work of God the Son, your faith would falter? It's by no means your own strength. It's by no means your own faithfulness. It's by no means your own, your own intellect, your own righteousness that keeps you. Like Peter, like everyone else, if you didn't have this ministry of the Holy Spirit, if you didn't have one who so intimately knew your own heart and your own groanings, if you didn't have someone who would step in even when you didn't know how to pray, if you didn't have that grace from God, you wouldn't be here today. But on the flip side of that, You have the confidence and you have the assurance. No matter what you're going through, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have His Spirit within you, which is Paul's condition throughout this chapter, if your mind is set on the things of the Spirit, if you have those evidences, then that Spirit who dwells within you is interceding. And you cannot fall away. You will not fall away because he's always praying according to the will of God in your every suffering and your every need, assuring you that no matter how dark and desperate it gets, God's going to keep you and he's going to complete the good work that he started in you. It's a blessed thought, isn't it? But for you, if you're here this morning and you don't have the spirit, your groanings are all your own. Your aches, your pain, your guilt, you're on your own. And they're only just beginning. Those aches and those pains from the corruption and suffering in this life, they're a foretaste of the kind of judgment that will come with all intensity before the throne of God. He's not your advocate if you don't have His Spirit, He's your judge. And the pains that you're feeling are the weight of your guilt. But if you don't know Christ today, if you're here and you don't have His Spirit, if He's not interceding for you, let me encourage you, He can and He will. If you'll repent, turn away from your sin, turn to God. The Scripture says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord. He hears that prayer and He saves you. Our encouragement to you this morning is when we close in a song and a prayer here in just a moment that you wouldn't leave here today without lifting up that prayer. Asking the Lord for forgiveness. Asking the Lord for His Spirit and new life within you. Let's uh, stand together. We'll be dismissed, as I said, with a prayer and with a song. Father, we're so grateful for you, so grateful for this time together. 
in the Word, so grateful for what a precious gift of your Spirit given to all who believe. But Lord, we pray for those who are here today who don't know you. They came this morning with aches, they came with pains, they came with groanings, they came with trials and suffering. Let them not leave under that weight, standing alone. Lord, we pray that you would save. We pray that you would renew. We pray that you would send your spirit into their hearts and bring them as sons and daughters into your family. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.